Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. Some of the girls got married early, but many of them who got married early got divorced early as well. That gave them a lesson as to choice about the husband and also the economic independence that they felt they should have in case things doesn't work out. As she moved away from tight-knit local community in her first marriage, she started to use more standard Japanese and also polite forms. She was also, in a way, performing a kind of personality where she's cosmopolitan career woman, now single woman. So that sort of shows in the way that she spoke. In this episode, the evolving lives and language of women in Japan. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. In 1989, then-graduate student Kari Okano embedded herself in two working-class high schools in the city of Kobe in western Japan, with the aim of talking to 17- and 18-year-olds about their experiences as they moved into adulthood. Today, three decades later, Professor Okano is still talking to some of the same women she started studying and through their personal accounts, continuing to gather insights into life transitions. Marriage, divorce, childbirth and experiences in and out of the workplace make up a big part of the picture. But so too do external forces impacting on their lives, especially the end of Japan's economic miracle in the early 90s and the devastating Kobe earthquake in 1995. Kari, now a professor of Asian studies and Japanese at La Trobe University, joins us in the studio to give us a glimpse into the lives of these Japanese women and how they've changed over the three decades of conversation. We're also joined by Asia Institute social linguist Okuko Nakane, who together with a number of colleagues has been examining the language used by the Kobe women over time to see how their life transitions have affected how they express their identities and describe their worlds. As with all human accounts, these are stories of both the ordinary and the extraordinary, with lessons that may well reach beyond Japanese cultural and national boundaries. The study has generated a number of publications, most recently the book Discourse, Gender and Shifting Identities in Japan, which came out in 2018. Welcome, Carrie and Dekuko. Thank you. Thank you. Carrie, let's start with the why. Why this project 30 years ago? What did you set out to achieve? Well, it is a quite a conventional PhD study whereby a researcher put herself into vocational high schools and observed what happens at school for the whole year. In this case, I was examining how and why these working class kids make decisions and eventually got permanent job before they graduated from year 12. So it was that, and I produced a monograph out of that. And it could have been the end of the story at the time, but I have decided to follow them up for fun, mainly. And since I had a grant at the time from Ratrov University, I decided to continue on. But once I talked to them two years after they graduated, it was quite fascinating to hear their stories. Actually, their stories are more dramatic than the kind of boring life that 
I had here as an academic. And then I also thought about Seven Up, you know, the British... The British series, yeah. yes. And I thought, well, maybe I could do something like that. But Where, where they revisited this yeah, group of people right. every seven, seven years. Seven years, yeah. I thought, well, my, I could do something like that. And then I thought that I was in a privileged position that I had spent the entire year with them already. So I probably have better understanding of their background than perhaps BBC's Seven Up Cities team. So that's the story. And these schools, as we said, they were in Kobe. Now, why, uh, in the context of your initial research idea, why was that place important? Well, Kobe is an industrial city which had military industries during the war and before the war, which meant that they brought forced labourers from Korean Peninsula, which was under the Japan's occupation for so many years. I was very interested in how the social inequality of children alleviated or be produced through schooling. So I needed to have a diversity of students and I wanted to have ethnic Koreans and the people of Buraku background who are the descendant of the former outcast population. So because you wanted those social stratas. Yes, I wanted a diversity of the student background. This is in particular because the Japanese studies had focused on, until then, the middle-class university-educated people. So I thought it would be quite interesting to see some other aspect of the Japanese society which had not been studied until then. So I was quite ambitious. <laughs> so before we, we look at what your project has turned out to be, I do have to ask, what did you find with your initial research plan that the question of how schools counter working-class kids going into a working-class job. What did you find? I found the school-based job referral system whereby school makes sure that every child graduating year 12 have a permanent continuing job at the end of year 12 was very effective in countering this reproduction of class. However, some kids put more emphasis on feeling comfortable at workplace than moving up in the social ladder. So even if they had opportunity in working as a computer programmer, which they studied at school and teachers encouraged them to get these kind of jobs, they decided to get the job as a docker on the Kobe port because that's where they felt comfortable. They didn't want to be challenged. I don't know whether being challenged is a good term, that they wanted to be in an environment whereby they can talk as they normally talk and they don't have to get dressed up in going for a walk. That is to say, you know, people have a comfort zone and happiness can be being in that comfort zone. And the teachers try very hard to encourage them to get into the kind of jobs that are more secure well-paid and which offered concrete career structure. But some of the kids really wanted to feel comfortable at workplace. And in fact, some of those kids are the ones that you ended up revisiting, aren't they? You went back after two years, you had a grant, you had the ability to reconnect. Did you reconnect with the entire 100? And how did you end up with the 21 women that you have followed now for 30 years? Well, that's a good question. 
I would have liked to have 100 students to follow. You wouldn't have the time. No, I, I wouldn't have a time. I, you know, I had a family to start and so on. Firstly, I had to drop all the boys because boys that I interviewed, I think I interviewed two of them in 1992, two years after I saw them last, they talked about events and so on. But the kind of things that they talked about were what they considered their quote-unquote achievement. That is to say, they are very reluctant to reveal vulnerabilities, failures and errors, bad decisions, and so on. And so I felt as if that I was, I was a quite convenient audience for them to talk about their glorious experiences. But they weren't really sharing their no, life experiences. No, I didn't think so. so. So the women were different? Women are completely different. You know, they talk about everything. The kind of things which I thought, oh, should I be hearing these stories? The divorce or debt, bad relationships, etc., etc. And then they really reveal how they felt about their workplace as well. For instance, the kind of feeling that they felt for the first time in their life about their working class background. So you ended up with 21. Why this 21? Well, they I, were just the most enthusiastic? I would say they were enthusiastic. Or I contacted a number of girls and these are the girls who had responded to me. Given that I'm imposing myself on their precious time, I really can't pick and choose. So I was quite happy to go along with the girls who are willing to be interviewed. And you made the point that you thought, gosh, should I be hearing some of this? exactly. So over the 30 years, those conversations must have changed quite a lot. I imagine initially they were quite formal, but you must have become friends with these women over time. I would like to think so, Ali. The fact that I'm a university graduate and they're not, and they have quite a strong sense of us and them. But I guess... As my life goes on, having kids and so on and so forth, they've got kids as well. Some of them had children much earlier than I did. So in that process, I think we formed quite a workable relationship. I don't think they are revealing everything. They reveal as much as they feel comfortable to me. And I think the amount of information that they feel comfortable in revealing has expanded somewhat. And it could be that some of them regret it talking about something that they shouldn't have said. But I think they have the confidence that it is a confidential conversation. Because it's anonymous. It's anonymous and they know that. And I had to go through this bureaucratic process of ethics approval that you might be aware of, that I had to get them signed the consent form. So they know all these, but nonetheless, they talk a lot. And the conversations, as you say, the stories are absolutely fascinating. But before we get to them, Akuko, you've analysed the language that's been used. And have you seen a change in the nature of these conversations over the decades? I think as those women share more and more information, and especially in this case, because the women are talking about their lives and transitions in their lives, and Kaori also actually divulges a lot of things that <laughs> that's happened to in her life. <laughs> so she shares as well. So, yes, yes. <laughs> so they share all these sort of difficulties that they might experience in their motherhood and so on and so forth. So there's a lot more, in a way, solidarity aspects to these conversations. And those things, in both subtle and explicit ways, actually, we can see in the language data. 
Is this the accommodation theory? Tell us about that. In our interactions, we might actually, in a way, parrot the ways in which your addressee speaks. And so, so, so you that accommodate can, each other quite yeah, literally. Yeah, it's very, it comes naturally, but you could also diverge from the communication style of your addressee in some cases. It could be pragmatic motivations that might drive you to diverge from other people's communication styles. But oftentimes we feel like we need to accommodate. We want to work with the person we're talking to. And in Kaori's case, she has a pragmatic motivation, of course, as a researcher. <laughs> she needs to develop good rapport with her participants. But I think generally there's a sort of build-up of this personal relationship as well as a professional relationship with the participants. I guess that's almost unavoidable when you're talking to people. I mean, basically, you've you've had contact yeah. over 30 years. It's an extraordinary period of time. But it does mean, Carrie, doesn't it, that you've become a player in this project, not yeah. an independent researcher. And does that matter? Mm. I don't think it matters. I mean, this is an interpretive research whereby objectivity, et cetera, et cetera, which was widely discussed in 1960s in social science, is very much undermined now that the researcher is part of the research scene and they talk because of me. And this is the reason why when this interdisciplinary project started, I had a bit of issues with the way in which linguists presented the data. You didn't like them coming and analysing every little word that you had well, spoken? No, I didn't mind that. It's just that they presented me as an interviewer and interviewee. But to me, I'm not just an interviewer. They talk what they talk because of me. Because Be you are who you are. Yes, and because of the relationship that I have built up. So from that kind of uh, ethnographic research tradition, it was quite um, not acceptable that these two people are, are presented as data as if they are devoid of surroundings. So that was one of the interesting aspects that I found from this collaborative project. So context is important. Yeah. Is, 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 yeah. That's the point that you're making. And Akuko, talking about context, to what extent does class and place inform language? And is it as simple as a different dialect? Or is it way more complex than that? Yes, it is. So those women, most of them, I think, they speak a Kobe dialect, which is one of the dialects that come under the umbrella dialect um, group called Kansai dialect. And they speak Kobe dialect that has some specific features distinctive to Kobe as opposed to, say, Osaka dialect that is part of the Kansai dialect group. So, yeah, they do use dialect, but then the context of the talk is an ethnographic interview, and they always been talking to Kauri. And so that also brings in another dynamics where Kauri actually comes from a bingo dialect background, and that is spoken in um, and where's Hiroshima. that geographically? Right, yeah, further, further mm. west from Kobe yeah, Hiroshima. in um, Hiroshima Prefecture. Yeah. So bingo dialect shares certain features with Kansai dialect and Kobe dialect. So Kauri also uses certain features that are common in Kansai dialect. It's a shared sort of group of features between bingo and Kansai. And then mm -hmm. that's a classic case of accommodation, especially on the part of Kauri. But then also she comes from Australia as a researcher based in Australia. And she speaks standard Japanese in some cases. It depends, actually. That's also very interesting because depending on the 
topic of the interview and the situation in which the participants have put themselves in and talking about. And so, depending on these contextual factors, there might be more standard Japanese used in their interaction. And sometimes there's a lot of mix. For example, in one turn, a participant might use a Kobe dialect. And then in the next turn, she might switch back to standard Japanese. That's very much, I guess, the geographical and the mm. dialect side of things. Yes. What about class? And if you just look more generally, does language differ with class in Japan? Uh, it's quite interesting because in Japan, there haven't been that many studies that looked at the relationship between class and language. And the only one that I am aware of was from a big project conducted by a leader, a scholar called Fumio Inoue. And he and his team looked at people from what they labeled as labor background and also people in service industry and then also office work category. And they looked at how people used politeness markers in Japanese in their interaction. And they found that people in the labor category used less politeness markers. And they also spoke more briefly. Um, They used less elaborate politeness markers and used less mitigation markers. One other interesting thing about this is that he and his team have been talking about democratization of honorifics in Japanese. So, Because, it's, of course, it's a very polite mm. society and honorifics and mm, mm. strata and all of this mm. is incredibly important. The language requires yes. to mark politeness mm. explicitly. So everybody has to learn to a certain extent how to use and manipulate honorifics in Japanese. But more recently, they say that people are actually moving away from honorific use associated with social structure and hierarchical structure of the society, Um, but using instead honorifics to negotiate interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. So if you want to ask your colleague to lend you some money because you forgot your purse at home or something and use honorifics in that sort of way. And in fact, we'll look at this a little later, but language everywhere is changing. It's obviously not just a Japanese thing. Carrie, tell us about these women. We know they came from a lower socioeconomic environment. But when you started to talk to them, what were their hopes and dreams? Well, when I interviewed them when they were year 12, their desires are to work a couple of years with this permanent job that school got for them and then get married before 24, 25. You know, that was their idea. So that was their kind of dream. But as the years go on, things change. Some of them got married early, but many of them who got married early got divorced early as well. And that gave them a lesson as to the choice about the husband and also the economic independence that they felt they should have in case things doesn't work out. So their dreams changed. And also I felt their notion of being happy have changed a great deal. At the beginning, they had a vague dream that they want to achieve. And then gradually, as they get mature, they realize it is not necessarily possible. So they adjust their dreams, they adjust aspirations to what they consider 
possible to achieve. So they started finding happiness in the little things, very little things. It could be just buying a little cutie product at the cutie shop and so on. Is that with a sense of disappointment or with a sense of contentment? I would say it's a sense of contentment, but it could be they're trying to project themselves to be content as well. But it depends on the individual. So there are some people who are very unhappy about their lives in general. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Professor of Asian Studies and Japanese at La Trobe University, Professor Kari Okano, and linguist Dr. Okuko Nakane. We're discussing the evolving lives and language of women in Japan, and particularly for a group of women who have been the focus of a now 30-year-long anthropological study. So, Carrie, tell us about some of these stories specifically. Now, of course, as we said, we're not saying their real names. We're protecting their privacy. But tell us about the woman you called Kanako. Yeah, Kanako is the central figure of our latest book. Kanako is a very beautiful girl. She had a boyfriend already in the school where I conducted a field work. And actually, her husband was also one of my subjects. They got so they met at school? Yeah, they met at school. And she fell pregnant as soon as she started working at the pearl industry in Kobe. And in Japan, once you get pregnant, they marry very quickly because a child born out of non-marriage status of the couple is registered as such in the family registration. So as soon as she found she was pregnant, she got married legally without any wedding and so on. And she moved to her husband's biological mother's house because they didn't have money to rent the place. The husband is quite irresponsible, couldn't keep up a job, have affairs, gambling, etc., etc. In any case, she had a baby at the end of that year. Which was, was she at this point content to be married or it was an accident? It was an accident. But since she got pregnant, she was quite happy to have a baby. Husband eventually settled on the fishing boat of his uncle. And then they moved to an apartment nearby the port where he works, where I visited her and her baby and husband. She had a what I consider a very challenging marriage. Financially very unstable. She had two more children before she turned 25. Meanwhile, she experienced this earthquake in 1995. So her residence was destroyed, had to move to elsewhere. But because of this experience of the earthquake, and they are considered as the victim of this earthquake, they could get a special residential loan, which they got, and then bought a condominium nearby the fishing boat where he worked. And by then, he had some issues with kidney because he was a heavy drinker. There is a gambling, there's a debt of money, etc., etc. But she keeps going on. And I ask questions like, um, oh, you have such a challenging life, but, you know, keep going. And then she said to me, oh, well, I don't have a challenging life. I'm actually enjoying myself. So it's really put me into my place that I am interpreting her life. You were making assumptions about her life. Completely. But did, but did, you, completely. did you feel, because you said earlier that perhaps they did not always tell you everything, yeah. did, did you feel that she was giving from her heart? I thought that was genuine. She had three girls. 
She had an apartment which they purchased with this earthquake victim loan. And husband got back to judo. Now works okay. She was very happy. However, she decided that she leaves the marriage because husband didn't allow her to work outside household. And she was required to work on the fishing boat for which he worked as well. So she left and she decided to leave because she knew the husband mother would look after the three girls. So she went into a relationship with a much older man. So she left her husband and she left her children? Yes, three girls. Is that unusual in Japan? Very unusual. I would say. But she said that she left because she knew the husband, mother will would look, care, for would care for them. And so she left the marriage and she became alcoholic. She started living with this older man who managed to rescue her from alcoholism. Then she decided to have a career as an aged care worker. She enrolled herself in a course, got the qualification, got the job. And this is where she met her current husband, young man, about five, six years younger. They got married because she got pregnant again. Then they decided to move to her husband's hometown in Hiroshima Prefecture. So now that's where they live. She produced two more children. Did she stay in contact with her initial children? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. She's got grandchildren out of... That is a lot of life for a 47-year-old, isn't it? I know. But it's interesting that she married this man from Hiroshima Prefecture who was the first son of a family, that is to say the heir of the family. So she now moved into his parents' household in a huge Japanese-style house, and she's got this social status of the first son's bride, which means that her husband will be the household of that quite a long-lasting family. And then now she has this status and there is an expectations coming with it from the community. And so she seems to act accordingly. That is to say, because she's expected to act in a certain way, as the wife of the first son of this family... She does so accordingly. And do you pick that up, Ikuko, in the interviews? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's so fascinating to see how the interaction evolved over the years. So when Kanako moved from the fishing village back to Kobe, and then she set herself up as an independent woman pursuing a career, she starts, I think it was a 2010 interview, where she started to use more standard Japanese very first interview, I think she used so-called plain form in Japanese. The language actually requires speakers to choose between polite sentence ending or non-polite sentence ending, and the grammar actually requires it. So Kanako is using primarily non-polite forms at the um, sentence endings in the first interview. So in, more colloquial, uh, if you like. Yes, yes, and more dialect features. But as she moved away from sort of tight-knit local community in her first marriage, she started to use more standard Japanese and also polite forms, which I'm sure she was using with her new work colleagues and clients. And also, in a way, one of the interpretations that we had about this was that she was also, in a way, performing a kind of personality where she's cosmopolitan career woman, now single woman. 
So that sort of shows in the way that she spoke. And now that she's married to the the firstborn who will become the head of quite a, a long-standing family, do you see that? Yes, she's kind of talking in a more middle-class mother kind of way. Mm. And, I mean, it's also geographical mobility at play there because she's moved away from um, Kansai dialect-speaking area. And that means that with the local people in her new community, she uses neutral, I expect, standard Japanese or probably she's adopting the local dialect more. And so she's probably suppressing her Kansai uh, accent and forums in her interaction with the local people in her new adopted community. But also standard Japanese being associated for dialect speakers to be used in a more formal context, as well as with people who come from a different dialect background. And one of our collaborators, Chie Takagi, who is a dialect expert from Osaka, she's actually now spotted some of the dialect features of the new community. So she's actually switching For the longer dialects. she stays there, the more mm, she will... Yes, the contact increases. Which I guess is... is is exactly as you would expect it to be. But, Carrie, you mentioned earlier the impact of the earthquake. I mean, it's not just the personal circumstances of these women. There are some very key external circumstances and things that impacted them. Kobe earthquake in 1995, which was so destructive, must have had a massive impact on these women's lives. Yes. Obviously, the initial impact was a disaster, and they had to move place, uh, houses are destroyed and so on. But in the case of Kanako... Was anyone injured by, in the families uh, no, of these women? No one injured. But in the case of Kanako, because of that, she could secure the particular housing loan. So for her, it was a positive? I think so, in the long run. right? However, there are other cases whereby the marriage went down because of the earthquake. In a stressful circumstance such as the earthquake, one can see vulnerable aspect or unpleasant aspect of the partner and that resulted in the marriage breakdown. Because these women were also, I suppose, entering the workforce just as Japan's economic bubble was bursting. I mean, it was difficult economic circumstances and they were starting behind the eight ball because they were in a difficult socioeconomic environment. That's right. Well, Japan's bubble economy basically busted in 1990 when they entered the workforce. So it was okay for them to get the job because at that time there were plenty of jobs. Once they got in the workforce, things were starting to change. The seniority system of wage is affected. And they had a good jobs, but at the same time, because of this insecurity of seniority system and a permanent employment system, they felt, some of them felt, that they could get the better deal by moving, and some of them did. But then that was very hard to find a second job. They also realized that being a high school graduate was a disadvantage. I felt in, at, in what way? Well, the university graduate can get much higher salary. So did they regret that they didn't go on? Because none of them actually had that ambition, did they? No, they didn't. And it's partly because they didn't have exposure to people, significant others, who built their careers on the university degree. And this is the reason why many of them, not all of them, now want their children to have a university education. And indeed, I think some of them are already at university. So it definitely changed their aspirations for their offspring. Yeah, but not all of them. Kanako's three girls from the first marriage, none of them went to uni. 
they obtained a job straight after high school. Two of them are already married before twenty five. One of them have two children already. Hence, Kanako, at the age of forty five or forty seven, are already grandma. And of course, her children from her second marriage are still too young、oh, to、yeah. know where they will、It's、primary school, where they'll end up. <laughs> Another woman that、uh, you talk to over these three decades is Fumiko. Tell us about her story. Yeah, Fumiko is completely opposite to Kanako. She was the student representative of the school. She had a clear idea as to what she wants to do. She got a job at the Mitsubishi Engineering as a clerical work, but her leadership skill was recognised. She was promoted, and in mid thirties, she was promoted from the clerical track to the career track. Now, this was introduced in nineteen eighty-five, and this career track, with all these possibilities of promotion and so on, was only available to male four-year university graduate until nineteen eighty-five. Even the female university graduate could not get into career track until 1985. So she was really quite breaking new ground. Oh, yeah, definitely. And due to the United Nations advice, the government passed this law in 1985. So all university graduate female have the same opportunity to apply for career track, but not for high school graduates like Fumiko. However. Ten years after this registration, the companies are promoting high school graduate if they demonstrate the capacity. So Fumiko was asked to apply for the promotion to career track, and she got it. But she got it, and she was ambitious because she went through a failed marriage seven, eight years prior to that. This was the case where the earthquake destroyed her marriage. She found her husband didn't cope very well. And she felt her husband was a burden, so she left the marriage. Husband didn't want to, but she went through the family court and then got herself out. And then she maintained the condominium that they bought using the the survivor survivor、mm-hmm. loan system. So she was very ambitious.、Uh, when I heard the news about this promotion, she was very excited. She had the subordinate under her. And by forty years old, she was wanting to have children, but on her terms. And I was very impressed when she said that she wanted to have a child, but not a husband. But then she thought about the the well-being of the child. As I said earlier, a child born out of non-married couple has this eternal record in the family registration system that she was born without a father. Fumiko didn't want give that disadvantage to this child. She told us that she was gonna look for a man who will marry her, but not live with her, but produce a child. I didn't laugh, but her friend did. Good luck, kind of thing. And then two years later, I heard the news that she actually found a man, got married, and produced a child. Now she lives with this two-year-old daughter in her. A condominium nearby her parents' place, and her husband, in a legally married,、uh, lives、uh, about an hour drive. And and then she continued to work, and she did she, exactly what she said she did. She did, and, and then she's a middle-level、uh, manager at the age of forty-seven. Have a subordinate who are four-year university graduate male, and that's quite interesting. I mean, she's she's very much empowered. I think she's the kind of person who actually. Exercised a high degree of agency, and she had a capacity to research the ways that would make it possible 
Both these women that we've talked about, again, obviously not their real names, but Kanako and, and Fumiko, Fumiko, incredibly strong women. They are. W- were the other 19 in the same category? Yeah, many of them are. Not all of them. Some of them became a typical housewife, married children, and when the kids start primary school, they would work part-time uh, casually to support the husband income. And they are very happy too. They follow a kind of conventional middle-class kind of life. But Fumiko and Kanako and some others had a very, what I consider, this is in comparison to my own life, a rather eventful, dramatic, interesting, intriguing trajectory. Impressive. Yes, I think that they're 47 and they have lived Mm. so much. If we look at this from a language point of view, Kuko, is this a uniquely Japanese story, do you think? Or the language trends you would see in any comparative situation elsewhere? What's really unique about doing this kind of research in Japanese is that language variation and language change research in general has been mainly focusing on how people pronounce words, pronounce certain sounds, especially in places like the UK and, for example, the 7-Up studies Mm -hmm. that looked at um, the language of some of the participants. They mainly focus on phonological features. So how do you you pronounce, say, but instead of but? Some people might say but and so on and so forth. Um, But in our case, because in Japanese, there are so many ways, your attitudes to talk and... There are so many options in the first instance. And and (laughs) things are marked morphologically, sort of word forms, verb forms, and dialect forms, you know, realized in, in a very explicit way. So it's very fascinating to see how these women, in a sense, manipulate these features in their interaction with Kauri and how those things possibly relate to the life transitions that they have gone through and their evolving relationships with Kauri. That's been really fascinating. And I think the fact that we are following language shifts in individuals' different life stages means that this can complement large-scale studies looking at communities' language shifts. So whether the whole community is going through some kind of language change, they normally take different generation groups at one point in time to look at whether certain things are being said in different ways and whether this is actually happening at a community level. But we are also looking at individual cases where we are seeing a lot more complexity than large-scale language change research has revealed. And Carrie, what's your biggest takeaway from the research so far? I've learned that everyone, regardless of the family class ethnic background, has a capacity to make sense of what can be happy. So even if in a a very challenging circumstances, from my point of view, somebody with very middle class background, they have the capacity to see some happiness in the little things so that they don't get too discouraged so that they can keep moving on. So do you keep going back? Yeah, I am. I'm having another session at the end of the year. The plan was that this would be the last one, but I might actually keep going. Oh, I think you should. (laughs) I think it's absolutely fascinating. And thank you so much for telling us about it and also the linguistic side of it too, which is fascinating as well. I look forward to reading more of the outcome of this research. Uh, Carrie and Akuko, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Our guests have been Professor of Asian Studies and Japanese, Professor Kari Okano of La Trobe University, and social linguist Dr. Okuko Nakane of the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. Here to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 20th of February 2019. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Here to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.